We're going to be in Daniel chapter 4. If you thought last week's reading was long, welcome to Daniel chapter 4. I've got to get someone to read these things for me. Um, It's so long and you've been sitting for a little bit and so I'm going to make you stand uh, so that you are not super restless during the sermon. So would you stand with me as we read to honor God's word? Last week I stumbled over all those words and so unfortunately I've now had to increase the size of the font on my printout so that I can now read these incredibly long passages but uh, read silently along with me as I read out loud the entirety of Daniel chapter 4, God help us all. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations and languages that dwell in all the earth. So this is King Nebuchadnezzar saying these things. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid as I lay in bed. The fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me, so I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians and the enchanters and the Chaldeans and the astrologers came in and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who is named Belshazzar, after the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its great height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit, let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its root in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven, let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth." Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Continuing on, verse 19, Now Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. And Belshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. It is you, O king, 
who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reached to heavens, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed to you, from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Verse 28, and all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my piety power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws." Unattractive. And the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of God stand forever. You, though, may finally be seated. Well, now you know what it was like when the Old Testament, when they would rediscover the law and they would read it all in one day and they'd all sit there and stand. Now you understand why they would just weep and repent. They're like, fine, just whatever it takes. Just let me sit for crying out loud. Well, we are looking at uh, what it looks like to live counterculturally in the midst of, of Babylon. And this is a long, long story. Um, and I, but I love stories. Right? This is one of those stories that you would... Have you even heard about and had in Sunday school? Daniel has lots of those kind of stories. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that we read last week. I'm a little bit of a bibliophile. I like to read books. Uh, and one of my, my favorite forms of literature, I think, is probably biography and memoir. Um, I, I just love it. Uh, and my favorite book this year has been this book. I recommend this to you. Now, don't read it with your children. Uh, he, he is a believer, uh, but he is... Uh, a little bit, he's profane. This is uh, Harrison Scott Key. Uh, he's a humorist and a memoirist. 
And he wrote this book, How to Stay Married, the most insane love story ever told. It's the best book on marriage I've ever read. Uh, It is fabulous. If you want to hear what it looks like or sounds like in the grief it looks like to go through seeking to save a marriage, it's fabulous. And it is hysterical and you, will, you would love it. I would even recommend particularly getting the audiobook because he reads it, and he's from Mississippi, and it is great reading. Now, in the prologue of the book, he gives you, uh, he tells you about, where, how about kind of gives you the, the, the direction of where the book is going. He says, I thought I had a great marriage. Everything was awesome. And then I went through hell. And hell saved me, and it saved my marriage. That's essentially what he says. What he's giving in this book, and what, why it's, I think it's so profound, is it is a testimony. He's actually a believer, um, and he's talking about in the book how his marriage went from what he thought was great to hell to being restored, and he shares a Christian testimony about the grace of God and the comfort of community and the restorative power of the gospel, and he does so with hilarity. It's a testimony. That's what he gives, and that's actually what we have in Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar is actually sharing a testimony. The writer or the editor of Daniel, the book of Daniel has taken this testimony by Nebuchadnezzar and has put it here in God's word. I don't know if you notice this, but the whole chapter is, or much of the chapter is written in the first person, right? Verses one through three, it says, king of Nebuchadnezzar to all the people's nations. Right? He's talking about himself. And at the end, at verse 37, he says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. He's declaring, here is what the king of heaven has done for me. And then he says, let me tell you about how he brought me to this point of praise and worship. That's a testimony. He's worshiping God and he's sharing the story about how God took him to this place of worship and humility where he's worshiping the king of heaven. Now, what leads to this worship and this testimony of Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar's testimony is how God took him from pride first, then to humility, and finally to worship. What an, and what an incredible story. And what an amazing change what God uses to bring him there. And he says, I want you to know the story of how I got there. This is what we have in churches, right? People get up and we'll share a testimony of how God brought change and transformation in their life. I mean, if we had Nebuchadnezzar today, I mean, he would be on the Christian conference circuit immediately. You gotta hear this guy's testimony. I mean, he was turned into an animal of sorts. And he was the king of the world, essentially. He was an emperor of incredible might and power. But all testimonies are stated to encourage and to challenge the listener, the hearer. And so remember that the people of God, Daniel's writing after the fall of Babylon, and he's writing to a people who are, even though Babylon has fallen, who are now still under the thumb of another nation. And then they'll be under the thumb of another nation. And in fact, Israel will essentially be a slave state for the entirety of the time until Jesus returns. Persia will be over them. And then we'll see Rome, the, the Greeks, and we'll see Rome over them. And so what we have here, I think, is there is a kinship with the experience of the people of God that Daniel is writing to. A people who are in indefinite enslavement or an indefinite exile. That even when they return to Israel and seek to rebuild the walls and have some form of identity, they're still a people who are oppressed of sorts. And so the people of God are living in a world in which they have to live countercultural which they have to to speak and live under the thumb of prideful and arrogant emperors and rulers. And so we hear in this testimony what God uses Nebuchadnezzar to, brings Nebuchadnezzar to worship. And in that, there are lessons for the people of God as to how we are brought to worship and how we are to interact with proud men like Nebuchadnezzar. 
the emperors of this world. And so what does Daniel intend to teach the people of God through the story and the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar? First, three headings this morning to help you in our time. We'll have lessons from each. First, first we get, we get to learn from the pastoring of Nebuchadnezzar in this story. Let's get into it. Nebuchadnezzar starts the story by saying what? My life was good. I was chilling. I was content. And then God sent me a dream and I was freaked out. And he tells the dream to the wise men of Babylon, and they, of course, can't figure that out. And so he finally calls Daniel in from the bullpen. And Daniel says, okay, here it is. There's this great tree. It's huge all the way to heaven and earth. It's stretched to the ends of the earth. And all the nations are gathered under it. So he's speaking about the, the empire of Babylon. And he says, but then there's this watcher, this holy one, who comes and he chops it down. And here in the midst, the, 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 the image changes from a tree, then the tree takes on a personal quality. It goes from talking about the tree as an it to talking about it as a he. And he says, in the he, he the, now the tree is a he, and this holy one pronounces a sentence of judgment on this man, this one who was once a tree and who is now a man, and he says, you will become like a beast of the field. And since the magicians and the wise men of Babylon couldn't interpret it, Daniel must do it. And so he tells, he tells Nebuchadnezzar this interpretation. But I want you to see two things about us as a people who live with the arrogant over us, and we do live with the arrogant over us. How many of you are looking forward to 2024 and all it involves with its presidential uh, elections and politics in which you're going, we're doing this again? These people again? We had four years to fix this and it's the same people. And so the question is, is for people who are going, we have to submit to this and we have to interact with the pride and the arrogance of this world who rule over us. Daniel's teaching us what it looks like to be countercultural and to speak the truth. And even to be a people who pastor the arrogant over us. I want you to see two things about what Daniel does here. First, I want you to see Daniel's pastoral concern. There is Daniel listening to this dream in which a huge tree gets chopped down and somebody gets driven out to eat grass with cattle. A voice pronounces judgment over him and Daniel knows this applies to Nebuchadnezzar. And the ruler who keeps Daniel, so here it is, he has to give this news to the, to the man who enslaves him of sorts, who rules over and oppresses Daniel's people, who is a man of injustice and unrighteousness. Now, wouldn't you, if you were Daniel and you heard this, wouldn't you go, <laughs> like, you would cheer inside, you're like, yes, he's finally going to get what he's owed. But what's his response in verse 19? What does he say? Then Daniel was dismayed, and his thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream of the interpretation alarm you. And Daniel said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Daniel was dismayed and was struggling even to speak. He couldn't bear to tell the king this news because he's giving him awful news. We should marvel at the fact that Daniel is so freely and so willingly and so competently willing to serve this man who has destroyed his homeland and devastated his cities and deported his people. We could hardly, though, have a more practical and beautiful example of love your enemies in the Old Testament. To love your enemies and to seek their good. And that is what Daniel is after. And not only that, but I think, I think Daniel, you know, what we're going to see in a couple chapters is Daniel is a man of prayer. He prays three times a day, morning, noon, and evening. I wonder if Nebuchadnezzar was on his prayer list. Because we're also told to pray for our leaders, aren't we? 
and pray for those who rule over you. Daniel had gotten somehow beyond the malice and the vengeance and could take no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. And in that, he marks the character of his God. Here's what it says in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked may turn from his way and live. What would it take for you to pray for that boss who's just awful? That coworker at your, at your job who walks around with a smugness and an arrogance that you just want to punch off their face. And yet to reach a point of such affection and care for them that you would be grieved by having to extend bad news to them. That you would want to give comfort to them. You see, Daniel was quite the opposite from another Old Testament prophet. There's a guy named Jonah. And we love the story of Jonah because Jonah gets, he gets swallowed by a whale and then he gets spit up by the whale and he goes to Nineveh and he says, repent, and then repent. But you know what Jonah does after that? They repent and he walks up on the hill and he tells God, let me die. I can't believe they repented. I wanted you to kill them all. I wanted hellfire and brimstone to be rained upon them. And he throws a royal pity party out in the desert. That is the heart of most of us, is it not? That when we see the person in our family or we see that person at work or that political character that we hate, we would go, I hate them, I hate them, and I hate them. I would like to pray imprecatory psalms over them and that's it. Destruction over them. And yet what we see for Daniel was the heart of his God. To love your enemy and to pray for them and to do good to them. Second thing though, while he has great concern, we also see Daniel's pastoral courage. Daniel's pastoral courage here. Like Nathan confronted King David saying, you are the man. So Daniel declares to the most powerful man in the world, you are that tree. You are that beast of the field. And that takes some major boldness and courage. Daniel takes up prophetic courage and he speaks what is now known as speaking truth to power. And he says it to his face. His courage isn't in there. He doesn't simply interpret the dream, which Nebuchadnezzar could figure, well, Daniel's just doing his job. But Daniel doesn't stay there, does he? At the end, he then goes, now if I could, if I could give you a word of counsel here, maybe you should repent of your sins. And maybe you should stop oppressing the people of the earth. And maybe you should seek justice. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. Daniel put his finger on the sore spot of Babylon's imperial glory, its social costs in terms of human oppression and exploitation, and he says, this, this has got to stop. He speaks truth to power with, yes, gentleness, but with incredible courage. And here he mimics the very words of Habakkuk. Habakkuk 2 it's talking about the same exact thing in the book of Habakkuk, he delivered these words of divine rebuke and judgment about Babylon. He says, shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Imagine reading that in the American South in 1859. To pointing at men in this country and going, you are the man. You are the man. This is injustice. Imagine doing it now. And he had the courage to say it. 
to point out the injustice where it's at. There is a sharp irony in the words of Nebuchadnezzar in saying, is this not Babylon, the great city that I have built? You think Nebuchadnezzar did one, laid one single brick? No, how is his great cities built? His, his cities were built on the backs of slaves and the oppressed people of the earth. And so Daniel's words may come with grief and gentleness, but they are packed with a lethal punch of courageousness. He faces the king with his social wickedness and his government, and he says, this must change. And therefore, brothers and sisters, we must be a people who are willing to share the bad news of God's call to repent. And it is not unloving to look at the world and say, this is wrong. You must turn from this. You must turn from this. We must be willing to tell others when God is not pleased with this pride or this human tendency to push him aside and to live in any way that we want. There is a place and time for Christians to stand up. Now understand a few wisdom principles with this. You see the the courage, but you also see the concern. And also there's just, this is Daniel who served now for probably 30 or 40 years. He has the collateral to do this. And he is a man who has bid his time He has not sought justice immediately overnight, but he has earned the collateral to speak into this man's life, and he does so. Do you see the heart of God's kindness to confront the proud, to confront the proud, and this is the call for us. If we're gonna be a people who are full of, or a countercultural people, we must be able to have both because the world has lots of courage, but it's an arrogant, prideful courage when we speak to power. That's how we usually speak to power. And without any concern, Or often where we go, we have all the concern, but we're never willing to speak truth. But God says, if you're gonna be countercultural, you must must have both. You must be courageous and you must have concern. That's the first heading we have. The pastoral courage, the pastoral care of Daniel for Nebuchadnezzar. The second thing, though, we see in the heading of the story is the humiliation of Nebuchadnezzar. The humiliation, pick it up in verse 29. At the end of 12 months, he was walking in the roof of the royal palace and the king answered and said, is this not Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And Nebuchadnezzar is quite full of himself. I mean, he just is. He, he, he's, so this is a year after Daniel has given this warning about the dream and, and after a year, nothing has changed. Nebuchadnezzar is still a man who's looked full of pride and living life in the way he wants to. Now understand, if there's ever anybody in this world who has reason for pride, it's Nebuchadnezzar. Let me just give you a sense of Nebuchadnezzar. He's built an empire, a culture, an administration, a city. As he stands and scans the panorama of his city, uh, he he can see in his city his three different palaces he has in Babylon. Babylon is the most indestructible city in the ancient world. It has a double-walled system. It has a moat around it, then it has one wall, and then it has a second wall. Let me just give you a little description of this wall. It's 17 miles in circumference. That is, imagine this, that's the length of the green belt here. So that is the entirety, that's the size of Babylon, and it is, it is surrounded by this moat and these two different walls. And these walls are between 20 and 25 feet thick. They could have two-way traffic of chariots going up on the walls. And every 60 feet, there would be a tower for guards to stand at both of these walls. And And then this wall was not a short wall. It was 40 feet high. This is a man who is looking, who has all the wealth of the world, has all the rule of the world, and he says, I built it. I did it. He thought of himself as God, not of a servant of God. Then he was the maker of the world and opposed to, a, to simply being understood as being a created being in the world. He was the one who creates his world. He forms it and he shapes it. 
This is about his glory. You see, pride is that which claims to be the author of what is really a gift from God. That's what pride is. Do you hear me there? Pride is when you claim to be the author of that which is really a gift from God. Pride is what makes you look at your life and say, "Mm, this is mine, I did it, I shaped this, as opposed to looking at life and going, this is all of your grace. One scholar describes this pride of of, uh, Nebuchadnezzar here as cosmic plagiarism. Someone who has been brought into your life, something has been given to you, and you say, well, I wrote it, I composed it, I did it. That's plagiarism. That is the way many of us live our life. Humility is a completely different approach, though. Humility looks at life like this. Everything I have is a gift. And he looks at everything and says, I don't deserve this. If I deserve anything from God, it's discipline and his justice and his wrath. But my goodness, look what he has given me. And there's something of Nebuchadnezzar in all of us, isn't there? That prideful sense that we look at our world and we say, I did this. I built this. And by the way, that can look like Nebuchadnezzar's as in being like, look at me. And it can also be like this, I suck. And it's self-pity because you're looking at your life and you're like, look what I've done. Look at what a screw up I've been. But they're both what? Self-focused. Self-focused. And this is the heart of pride. So after 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar clearly full of himself. And so God decides to turn him out to pasture. This is God's humiliation of Nebuchadnezzar. He's struck down by God with a season of utter mental illness. He says there's seven seasons. We don't necessarily know what this means. This could be seven months, seven literal seasons like spring, winter, yada, 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 or seven years. I think it's seven years based on the history that there's a seven-year period where we have nothing in the annals about this particular Nebuchadnezzar. So he goes and he lives outside and eats grass like a cow. This doesn't mean he was turned into an animal. He lives like an animal. Okay, that's what's going on here. And he is, his hair is so long, I've never thought of hair as being like eagle's feathers, but kind of flowing locks he's got. And he's got, his nails are like the talons of an eagle, which is quite gross. In other words, what we're talking about here, this is not a man who simply just went through No Shave November. This is a hairy dude. Like, this is, his life is upside down. He cannot rule. rule. And actually, psychologists have actually classified the name of this. this. This is an actual mental illness. It's called boanthropy. It's a mental disorder that's very rare where one, a person believes himself to be a cow. <laughs> I, saw, I saw a couple weeks ago on Instagram a picture of, it was a convention of people who believed that they were cats and dogs. Hysterical. Uh, that's what they identified as. But that's similar to this. It's similar to this. And so God decides to take him down. Right, what's the passage? What's the verse? God God humbles the proud. Humbles the proud. When I was a kid, there was somebody who got humbled who I thought was the baddest man on earth. Let me show you a picture. There's a picture here of Mike Tyson. If you're my age, I remember looking at this picture in Sports Illustrated and just looking at his biceps and being like, they are enormous. Look at this guy. This, he was the most vicious fighter in the 80s, the greatest boxer from 85 to, not, uh, to 90. He knocked out people left and right in less than one minute. Ten of them. I'm not exaggerating. This man was bad to the bone. He was a danger to everybody around him. We even had a video game, right? Greatest video game ever. Mike Tyson's punch out. He got so rich from his wins that there was a story about him running his Ferrari out of gas and then just leaving it on the side of the road. <laughs> which is hysterical. 
At the peak of his career in 1990, Iron Mike was supposed to uh, square off with a no-name fighter named Buster Douglas. Now, when I mean nobody, he was a nobody. There wasn't supposed to be a challenge. It was supposed to be a warm-up fight for another one. Tyson had knocked out his previous opponent in 93 seconds. But Mike was so arrogant at this point, it was so bleeding, he was so great, that he didn't train for the fight hardly at all. And he went out partying the night before. And so here's the next picture of him fighting Buster Douglas. That's what Buster Douglas did to Mike Tyson. Mike thought he was special. And Buster showed him that he wasn't. And this proved was a watershed. By the way, Mike Tyson never really recovered from this. His, ra- his career went rapidly downhill. And Mike Tyson's life in, in, in as a boxer illustrates what's going on here. The greatest danger for you sometimes is, <laughs> is not defeat. It may be success. Because the larger they are, the harder they fall sometimes. Because God humbles the proud. And so let me ask you this. How proud have you gotten? Just as Daniel warned Nebuchadnezzar of his pride, so the author of Daniel is warning us all about our own pride. What Daniel 4 demonstrates God's ability to humble the most arrogant leader of a foreign oppressive empire, an enemy out there, we must be careful concerning the pride that can infect our own lives. Christians are not immune from a pride that removes our eyes from God and places them on ourselves and our moral superiority. In other words, the message to God, of God, to the people of Israel is this. God humbles the proud is not just a comfort for us, but also a warning to us all. And how might we see such pride? How might we see it rest in us when we engage with the proud of this world? Because you do have to engage with the proud of this world. Well, I wonder, the original Hebrews, how would they have potentially felt about, felt about this fall of grace for Nebuchadnezzar? What would have been the response of Hebrew people? <laughs> yes! Yes, he's finally gone crazy. God did, he, look at him, God has made a, sh- a fool of him. Why is the sexual spo- uh, response of the human heart to gloat when we see the mighty fall? What does it say about our own hearts? I recently found myself after hearing about a, a, a megachurch leader who um, was full of himself and clearly running a megachurch empire about himself in the name of Jesus. And this megachurch pastor had a fall from grace. And in my own heart, I was pleased. So what did that say about my own heart? The presence of such feelings are the sign of what in me? Pride. You know, the reason when we, when we face the downfall of others, when we glory in, the, in believing that the world's just going to hell in a handbasket, because we feel superior to it, and so we're glad for it. And that is the pride. C.S. Lewis said this, the people who hate braggers the most are braggers. And isn't that for you? The people who annoy you the most are the people who get under your skin day in and day out are the people who seem the most arrogant to you. You go, I can't stand that person. I can't stand it. And what does that reveal in us? Nebuchadnezzar had delusions of being more than human. And so with a kind of poetic justice, God brought him down to being less than human. And might we learn from that? The lesson that God humbles the proud. And may we be convicted about our own heart response when we see the proud brought low. Understand here, God is not being cruel to Nebuchadnezzar. God is being gracious. Yes, he is humbling him, and he is humiliating him, but God is seeking to bring Nebuchadnezzar to a place of humble and worship, and that's where he ends up. And that's the last thing, the last heading I want us to see this morning. 
This is the worship by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar worships in verse 34. He says this. So he's, so he's been turned into a, uh, uh, this kind of this beastly-like character. He's how he's living. And then it says this. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. The key moment here is that Nebuchadnezzar lifts up his eyes. What kind of worship can cow-like people do? Not very articulate worship. He's provided a worship that only an animal could, even an animal could do, which is simply lifting up his eyes. In the scripture, that phrase, lifting up your eyes, is a gesture of humility, of acknowledging God. It's a, word, worthless, oh, a wordless gesture that says, I am small and I depend on you. The humiliation by God was not a cruelty. It was a means of bringing Nebuchadnezzar to a place of worship. And as God heals him and restores him, he overflows with what? Worship for the true God. This is the case of Chuck Colson. Some of you know, if you're older, you may know that name. Chuck Colson was the special counselor to Richard, the president, Richard Nixon. He walked in and out of the uh, most powerful office of the world. He was uh, the, the, uh, the president's hatchet man. He was in his inside circle. He was one of the president's men until John Dean blew the whistle in 1973. And Chuck Colson found himself as the pariah of American culture and found himself in jail. And at that low place, he lifted up his eyes to Jesus. He said this, he admits that the worst, the most humiliating experience in his life was the best thing that ever happened to him. What God is after in humbling and humiliating Nebuchadnezzar here is not ultimately the humiliation, it is the restoration to a place of worship. And in humiliation, what has Nebuchadnezzar learned about God that brings him to that place of worship? He says it three different times. He makes it profoundly clear. We're going to read them all. Verse 17, the sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men. Verse 25, and after seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And in verse 32, we see the same thing again. These seasons of time will pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. Do you think God's trying to make himself clear here? Daniel hammer four, hammers home the point that Nebuchadnezzar has now learned, and that is the key point in the main point of this story. Here's the main point, and it's very critical. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar learns and what brings him to a place of worship. The main point is this. God rules. God rules. Not you, Nebuchadnezzar. God rules. And God rules not just in heaven, but God rules the kingdom of men. And therefore, human rulers serve at his pleasure. They are the lowliest of men. The Most High also exercises a concrete sovereignty here. Do you see this? This is not, when he says the kingdom of men, it is, you know, Nebuchadnezzar would have thought this. Well, of course, he had many gods. Of course, God is the God of heaven. That's where, heaven, where gods are supposed to stay. I'm the God of down here. But the affront to Nebuchadnezzar is that God says, I'm not simply the God of heaven. I am the God of heaven and earth. And I am the one who's put you into this place. I'm the one who rules over you. As Ronald Wallace, one commentator said, is God rules down here, not merely up there. And that is good news for a people living in exile, is it not? That God rules. 
for people living in Babylon and facing a world of pride that is telling us that we are on the wrong side of history. And they are telling us that. And believing that they are so ingenious for exalting their foolishness and calling that which is evil good. And we see the rulers of this world ruling with oppression and injustice and perverting justice. We can take comfort in this, even that. God says, I rule. We cannot understand it, maybe, and struggle with why he's bringing about the things that he's bringing about but we better not believe for one second that this, these things and these events that are happening in our culture, in our world, and this oppression and this injustice is out of the hands of our mighty God. To the oppressed and people under the foot of dictators who are small and weak, God is saying, hey guys, remember this, I'm bigger than them. And with a flip, a snap of my fingers, they could be out eating grass. I remember reading about one mighty Civil War general who boasted that he had never lost a battle. A few days later, he was killed from a tick bite. Oh, how the mighty fall. And in God's providence, he can rule in any way he desires. And therefore, here's what that means. Remember where we started? It means you can have pastoral courage. That you can face the things of this world. Daniel is able to speak in this way and live counterculturally because he knows ultimately the one is in charge. And so he says, I will speak the truth even to power because they submit, they have to submit to God ultimately. So there, but there's more gospel. Here, here's what I want you to see. Nebuchadnezzar must be turned into a beast in order to come to his senses And we become beasts of pride, and we're so much like Nebuchadnezzar as well, when we root and exult in the downfall of the proud. So how does God restore the Nebuchadnezzars and the Andrew Henleys of this world? How does he remove the beastliness that is pride, the thing that turns us animal-like at work and in our home? It happens when you you see the sovereign king become a beast like us. That's what will soften you. It will make you low. You see, the gospel is this, that the king who ruled heaven and earth was made low. You see, Jesus Christ was the only one who ever stood on the face of the earth and was truly the master of the universe who could look out over the world and say, it all belongs to me. And yet he says, I lay it all down and I become low, like a servant. That's Philippians 2, but there's also this in Isaiah 52 where it says this, It says this, Isaiah 52, verse 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. It's speaking about Jesus, and he shall be exalted. But how does that come about? How does he get to the exalted high place? Verse 14 and 15. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. So shall he sprinkle many nations. What is this the story of? This is the story of Jesus who came and was beaten and gored and was slashed and was gashed and was marred so that he was a man of sorrows and a man of sufferings, a man who we could not look upon without shame upon ourselves. And he says, I was marred. I became one who looked as less than human so that he may what? Sprinkle the nations. In other words, may he sprinkle the proud and wash us clean. That the one who was truly the master of the universe became low so that he may cleanse and wash the sins of those who are beasts of pride. 
And what does this seeing this king who leaves heaven to earth, what does it do for prideful beasts like you and me and Nebuchadnezzar's? What does seeing this king do for us? It will melt your beastly hearts. It's hard to remain prideful when you see somebody die for you. How do people of God become humble enough to be patient with the pride of other men? Where you can go into work and you can have a boss who is so full of himself and yet you can learn to be so humble and so gentle and so compassionate that you can speak with concern and love and compassion and truth. How do you get to that place? You must be made low. Francis Fenelon, who was an archbishop, pastor said this, nothing will make us so tender to the faults of others as by self-examination thoroughly know our own. But might I add to that, that when you come face to face with the beast that is inside you, the beast whose name is pride, and then you see the God of the universe made low and come to you and say, that man and that woman, that's who I died for. I was made low to cover that sin, that part of yourself that is actually so ugly and grotesque. I died for that man that your heart gets melted. And you say, oh, if he would do this for me, in my pride and my arrogance, then I, like Daniel, can turn around and love my enemies and pray for those over me and be gentle and truthful with the proud. The way you get a humble heart is that you allow, he allows you to have compassion, seek the good of even the proud, is that you look to the cross and you see Jesus dying for even your pride. Let's go to the table of mercy.